Morning, church. Trust that you are full of faith and hope and expectation and even a little bit of bodily warmth today. It's just felt a little warmer today outside, didn't it? Just a little bit. Thank God for that. Well, we are in, uh, we've been in a series on work, trying to understand uh, the fact that the work that each of us has to do, whether we are paid for it or not, whether we're looking for work, whether we love our job, whether we hate it, whether we were part-time, full-time, whether we have, uh, if we have children, we have a full-time job and maybe another full-time job or a part-time job or whatever it is that we do for most days uh, during the week, that work is not um, a four-letter word (laughs) in that sense. It's not something that we are just meant to endure and get by with or something just necessary to pay the bills, but the work that we have to do in life, which as I said to you, we we will do roughly for about over 100,000 hours of our lives, uh, therefore more than anything else we do, is something that actually God has given us to do and is a gift and is something that we were meant to find fulfillment and purpose and in a sense carry out um, God-like activity. And as God created the world and filled it, he then set human beings in this beautiful world and said, okay, go and create and, and make beautiful things and make new things and rearrange other things to make them grow. And as we've been exploring that, we've been understanding that that's great, but we also are working out this activity in our lives in the midst of the brokenness in the world around us, which the Bible tells us is sin. And sin at its heart, we said, is not fundamentally just doing bad things or breaking God's law. It is a bent within us that says, God, we know how to run our own lives. We don't need you to figure out what we should do. We don't need to listen to you. We're, we're our own gods. That is just the bent that is in every one of us. Uh, whether we call ourselves followers of Christ or not. And so that inclination is actually warped and affected even our work so that things that were supposed to be beautiful and enjoyable and fulfilling and fruitful have become difficult. It hasn't wiped out all goodness in work, but we struggle in the beauty and the brokenness of what work is. Now, one of the things that I have begun to realize over the last few years is living and working here in North America has its own set of challenges in the workplace. And we've talked about that. We've talked about some of the difficulties of you know, turning our workplace into idols or just some of the frustration that happens in our workplace. But one of the things I have realized over the last few years is there is another shadow uh, side, even a darker side of difficulty in work that most of us in North America have no experience in whatsoever. And that is the fact that for many people in the world, work is operated out of poverty, where there is just not enough fruitfulness from work to even sustain life. And so a good portion of the world, the statistics tell us, live on less than a few dollars a day. And so there is a work associated with poverty that has nothing to do with, well, should I spend money here or not? And if I do this, that means I can't buy this house or can't go on this vacation or I have to drive a less than nice car or maybe I have to take public transit. No, no, this is a work that is marked by that is so much less uh, fruitfulness than what is actually needed, which means me or my children might even be dying because we cannot eat enough from our work. So there's a work that's um, poverty is, which is, a, which is a whole other side of difficulty in work. And then there's the work of slavery, where they tell us uh, approximately 27 million people in the world are enslaved in some way. More than were ever enslaved in the black African slave trade of the 19th century and in Great Britain and in the United States in the 20th century. More than ever, there are more people enslaved. And they are enslaved in... Um, 
in brick factories, in clothing factories. They are enslaved in the sex trade. They're enslaved simply because somebody more powerful than them is exploiting them, and there's no one more powerful than the exploiter to actually stop them. And so there is a work that is literally slavery. And as we talked about last week or a couple weeks ago, maybe some of us may feel like we're slaves, sort of we're being sort of used up by our work, but this is true slavery on a whole other level, at a wider spread level than ever before in human history. There's that kind of work, poverty, slavery, and then work that comes out of a lack of education, a lack of opportunity for education, a lack of, illiter- a lack of literacy, which drives a cycle of poverty and slavery. So there are people working and not able to work themselves out of what they are in because they cannot get, they don't have access to education or they don't have the time to go and attend school because they are living as subsistence livers. So they actually, we realized this when we started digging wells in Africa, that wells not only provide fresh water for a village, it means that the girls of the village who normally would have to spend four hours a day walking to and from to get water actually don't need to do it anymore and they can go to school which is a way out for them. And so there is a a large number of people in the world, virtually none of whom are in North America. In fact, none of them are in North America. And yes, we have poverty in North America, but the poverty line in North America is well above what true poverty is in the rest of the world. And so there is a, 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 a working reality of poverty, slavery, and illiteracy or lack of education that marks a good number of people in the world. And that as we begin to wrestle with this as people that this is foreign from us in terms of proximity, and yet now we are more aware than ever because of the internet, because of the ability to travel globally and to get on a plane, we are now aware more than ever that this is a reality of work for many people. And how we wrestle with this, uh, you know, and maybe every person kind of moves from one extreme to the other. But some of us feel paralyzed by that. And, and we just kind of want to shut it out because we don't know what to do with it. Others of us maybe feel guilty as we talk about it, even as I'm talking about it, think, oh yeah, I shouldn't complain about what, what do I do? I'm kind of torn, but I still live in this world. So, you know, there's still a reality. What am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to sell everything? Or how do I, what do I do with this? Others of us may be motivated to try to do something and try to make a difference on one level. But a large part of us in North America just are, are either feel torn or don't want to know or we think, I don't even have the capacity to think about this. The work that I have in my life and the struggles I have in my own life's work leave me with little time, emotionally or actually literally, to deal with the fact that there are people working in the context of slavery and poverty and illiteracy. So what do we do? The church historically, when it has wrestled with these issues, has sort of fallen into kind of a schism. Some aspects of the church as it relates to these issues and the rest of the world have said, you know what, let's just give them the gospel. They, they need uh, to know the good news of Jesus Christ and this world is gonna end anyway, so let's just tell people about Jesus. Let's just try to get them saved, um, spiritually speaking, because you know what, the rest of the things that are happening in this world, they'll just have to endure it, but really what, hap- what they need is to know that they're gonna go to heaven one day, so let's just, so the, uh, what, what has been termed maybe the evangelical church has focused more on the gospel the good news. Then there's a whole other uh, side of 
Christianity and churches that have said, well, we're not really sure about this whole concept of sin and we don't wanna tell people that they should believe something different and change their religion. Let's just try to help them with their physical needs. Let's try to do good works. Um, and, 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 we're, and that's really what it means to be the church is to do good works. And so the, depending on your tradition, I don't know whether you had a faith tradition or not, but if you did, maybe you can even be thinking about, yeah, my tradition sort of didn't talk so much about doing good works. We just talked about the good news and we just got to try to get people saved. Or maybe you grew up in a tradition or a part of a tradition recently where it's like, okay, well, let's not talk, so let's not worry so much about uh, whether people are saved and let's not argue about religion and who's right. Let's just do good works. And there's a schism that has been created in the church it is good news actually to know that the Bible knows no such schism. That we find in the life of Jesus something completely different and actually is the basis for which we move forward as the Christian church. And so I wanna to read to you from uh, Luke chapter four. It's one of the gospels of the biographies of Jesus and it's a passage that tells us uh, what Jesus taught about this whole thing about good news and good works. Luke uh, 4, 14 to 21. Jesus returned to Galilee, that was his hometown, in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. As he stood up, and he, and he stood up to read. And so oftentimes, rabbis or teachers would come into the synagogue, and they were given the opportunity to read from the scriptures. So the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, which was the Old Testament, obviously, at that time, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, and this is in your, if you look in the book of Isaiah, in chapter 61, this is what you would read. And Jesus read this aloud. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to release the oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him and he began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry in a sense that he had been uh, a child of Mary and Joseph, grown up as a carpenter's son, therefore he was a carpenter. And at the age of 30, he begins to kind of leave that and begin to teach and kind of travel all over the area, telling people about the good news. And so he comes into the synagogue and he reads from this passage in Isaiah, a scripture they would have known very well. And he tells them, the spirit of the Lord is on me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom to the captives, to release the oppressed. And then he says, today, this scripture is fulfilled. And the word fulfilled, the Greek word that he uses actually means filled. In other words, today, this scripture comes alive in me. Now we might read this and think, oh, he's talking about preaching good news, right? Because he uses those words, preach, proclaim. He's talking about speaking because he was, a, he was a teacher, he was a preacher, so that's what he did. He went around and that's true. He said, today, the spirit of the Lord is on me to tell you the good news. And certainly everywhere he went, Jesus was telling people who God really was because their religion had obscured their view of who God really was. And Jesus went around telling them, God is a father. Yes, he's holy. Yes, he's almighty. Yes, he's creator. But he's also daddy. That was the, the word Abba means daddy. 
And so we can ask him for whatever we need. God is full of justice and mercy. God is the one who says little children and women who are otherwise oppressed and marginalized in that society are equal. And in fact, he said children are the first in line to the kingdom of God. And so he talked a lot. He preached a lot about what we would call good news and he pointed people to himself. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. But lest we think he was talking about some spiritual reality alone, that don't worry about your life, just follow me and one day we'll go to heaven. In fact, Jesus never used that kind of language. We also see that when he said, this scripture is filled, in me, everything starts to change. All of the injustice in the world begins to be renewed now in me. We know this because what did he do? He didn't just speak. Everywhere he went, he was dealing with injustice. He was fighting injustice. He was healing people that were crippled and sick. In that society, we'd say, well, sickness was that injustice. Well, not in and of itself, but in that society, there was not the kind of healthcare systems that we have today. And in fact, if you were sick in that society and in that religion, they believed, well, it must have been something you've done wrong or your parents did wrong. And so you should just be left alone. And Jesus said, no. God has grace and mercy on all of us because we're all sinners. And just because you're healthy doesn't mean you're a better person than the one who's sick. And so he went to the ones who were sick, who had no opportunity to make money for themselves, and he healed them. But he didn't just address physical needs. He met a woman at the well, a woman who was drawing water in the middle of the day. And implicit in that passage was obviously a woman who was ashamed because nobody would draw water at a well in the middle of uh, the noonday sun in that climate, alone. And Jesus said to her, you have a thirst in your life because you've gone from one husband to another to another and there's brokenness in you and do you know that you can find wholeness in me? But he didn't just address that. There's this one story about he meets with a man named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. Tax collectors were Jews who were traitors. They were collecting taxes on behalf of Rome and so the Jewish people hated them not just because they were traitors but they used to skim off the top so they'd collect more than Rome asked them to and so they lived as very wealthy people. And this guy Zacchaeus finds out about Jesus and Jesus says to him, hey, I wanna go have, have a meal with you. They disappear into his house. We don't know what they said. Maybe Jesus was telling him the good news, but all we know is Zacchaeus comes out and says, you know what, I've cheated a whole bunch of people and I wanna stop doing that and I'm gonna repay everybody that I've cheated. So economic injustice was righted by Jesus. We don't know what he said, but whatever he said made this guy think, this isn't just about good news, this is about good works. If he is who he says he is, my life needs to change, my money needs to change. And Jesus, we know, many of you know that story where Jesus takes five loaves, and two fish and multiplies it to feed 5,000 people, literally feeding the poor who had no access to that kind of resources. And so we see in the life of Jesus both good news as he preached and good works as he acted, as he lived it out together. The truth is the schism that the church has created where some brands of the church think that we should just preach the good news and save people's souls and others say, well, let's not talk about sin and all that kind of stuff, let's just do good works, is a false dichotomy. In Jesus we see, when Jesus says, today this is filled up in me, beginning with me, God has chosen to redeem the world through me. And that means good news and it means good good works and they go together. To say that God is a God of love, if we preach the good news, if we tell people that there is hope, that there is forgiveness, that there is grace for the sinner, that there is inclusion for those who have been set on the margins, if we really 
speak and preach that good news, that is going to inevitably lead to good works. Because if we are a people who talk about the love of God, then what should be the, what should be the thing that marks our lives the most? The love of God towards others. That's why Jesus said, greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And the apostle John said, if you say you love God, but you don't love your brother, you don't really have the love of God in you. Good news, good works, they go together. If you truly believe that we have right standing before God, not because of what we've done, not because of our good decisions, but that every one of us has brokenness in us that given the right set of circumstances, we would choose destructive things, and all of us know this in big and small ways, then we don't look down on others and say, well, they've, you know, God helps those who help themselves. Isn't that in the Bible? No, Abraham Lincoln said it. it's not in the Bible. It's not true, God helps those who help themselves. We don't help ourselves. I don't know, if you're anything like me, I make stupid decisions. I make decisions that make a mess of my life and God is continually loving me and pulling me out of the pit and rescuing me from myself. If I really know that, then I'm never gonna look down on another person and say, well, they made those decisions and even if they did, the grace of God in me is gonna say, God has been gracious to me. We must be gracious to those who also make decisions and put themselves in bad situations. If we really worship Jesus, and as we look at his life, we would look at one who not only worshiped God and went to the synagogue, but he was out in the marketplace and in the places where religion has said, you don't belong, and Jesus broke all of those barriers and said, God lives here because he lives in me, and whoever receives me receives the Father. Even if religion has said you don't belong because you're unclean, because you're a different skin color, because you've done things in your past that would disqualify you, in Christ, all of that has changed. Good news and good works go together. And so we say to that schism of the church, it says, well, let's just worry about saving people's souls. We may know if a soul is saved, it means mind, body, spirit, economics, job, everything is beginning to be redeemed. We are whole people in Christ. And no, it's not all gonna get fixed yet in this earth, but if we really love God, if he really has saved my soul, it's gonna show up in the deeds and the good works of the body of how we help other people. Now, there are also those traditions that say, well, let's not talk about the, the, the good news and let's not get into arguments about religion. Let's just do good works. Why do we have to talk about Jesus as saving our souls? If you take Jesus out of justice, you have two problems. One is you have to ask yourself, why do I care? A Christian, if they are, what, let's use a provocative word, they are a fundamental Christian. The world acts, the problem in the world is not fundamental Christians. We're just not fundamental enough. Because a truly fundamental Christian looks and acts like Jesus. And so if you become more committed to your faith as a Christian, to the good news, you're gonna be committed more to good works. Love is gonna be pouring out of your life. But if you believe that we've come from nothing and go to nothing, that as Stephen Hawking has said that we are all chemical scum on a moderate-sized planet, if that's what you believe about who we are, you may want to help other people, but why should you? You have no reason to. 
In fact, if you believe that survival of the fittest is how we came to be, you are fighting against survival of the fittest by helping the weak who are being oppressed by the stronger. If the stronger are oppressing the weak, aren't they just carrying out the principles that brought this world into being to begin with? You may want to help people, and this doesn't mean that people who don't believe in God don't have good works and desire to do good. It just doesn't come from their worldview. It comes from something that comes deep inside of us, which actually has been put there by God. It says, every one of us knows that we're meant to love each other. If you pull Jesus out of justice, you have no good reason for pursuing justice because we're all chemical accidents and the stronger oppressing the weak is how the world came into existence anyway. The other problem you have if you pull Jesus out of justice is you begin to realize, as many of you know, the more you peel back the layers of injustice, the more we will find the issue is not fundamentally education. As one of the guys who's a, a trafficker of girls in this York region we saw an interview with said, he's like, I know it's wrong, but the money's really good. Is that an education problem? No, it's a black heart problem. It's the heart of sin. As we realize that some of the ways AIDS is perpetuated in some of these African countries is as a weapon that the women use to get back at those who have abused them and taken advantage of them when they were younger. And the only way that stops is not through education about safe sex. It's about Jesus coming and cleansing a heart and forgiving a heart. The suffering savior coming and saying, I have suffered with you, but I, have give, I not only have forgive you, but I give you the power to be able to forgive even the most heinous crimes done to you. If people are just products of time and chance, flotsam and jetsam crashing together, somehow coming, then we can label them whatever way we want. And every time one group of people labels another group of people, it's the beginning of oppression. But in Jesus, if we realize only when we see our inherent dignity as children, sons and daughters of the living God, bought with the precious blood of Christ, do we realize every human being has equal value and equal worth. An injustice against one is an injustice against all of humanity. And the only way a nation will be changed is if men and women are changed. And the only way men and women are changed is when the heart of Christ, our Savior, comes in and changes us from the inside out. Good news, good works have to go together. One propels the other. And the more we begin to do the good, the good works, we can realize, hey, even if we help people, even if we feed them, even if we clothe them, what is gonna change their hearts? It's the thing that has changed my heart, is Christ. And that if I really love this Jesus and believe that he has saved my soul and cleansed my sin, then, then the, the deepest mark of his life in my life will be love for others. Good news, good works together. It's interesting, even um, people who don't call themselves Christians recognize the reality of Jesus and the necessity of it. Philosopher Jacques Derrida, who died a, a few decades ago, he wrote, he was, wrote on post-structuralism, post-modernism, maybe if you've taken any philosophy in university or college, you would have read some of his stuff. Published over 40 books, he's not a believer in Christ, but this is what he said. Today, the cornerstone of international law is the sacred. What is sacred in humanity? You should not kill. 
You should not be responsible for a crime against this sacredness, the sacredness of man as your neighbor, made by God or, or by God made man. In that sense, the concept of crime against humanity is a Christian concept, and I think there would be no such thing in the law today without the Christian heritage, the Abrahamic heritage, the biblical heritage. And Barack Obama, in his address to the, uh, at, in uh, 2006, before he became president, a couple years before, at, uh, in Washington, said this, secularists are wrong when they ask believers to leave their religion at the door before entering into the public square. Frederick Douglass, was a civil rights uh, activist. Abraham Lincoln, William Jennings Bryan, Dorothy Day, Martin Luther King. Indeed, the majority of great reformers in American history were not only motivated by faith, but repeatedly used religious language to argue for their cause. So to say that men and women should not inject their personal morality into public policy debates is a practical absurdity. Our law is by definition a codification of morality, much of it grounded in the Judeo-Christian tradition. The history of nations that have allowed Christ to come in have not been fixed in their entirety, but one of the things that marks them all the time is the pursuit of equality. So to know this Jesus brings good news and good works together, but even as I say that, and as I say to us, listen, in our life's work, whatever your work is, whoever you are, you are responsible for or whoever you are accountable to, whatever you do for a living, part of our work is meant to be the work of justice, of fighting injustice. That as North Americans, we have more opportunity, we have more awareness, we have more access than ever before, and that we are being called in as part of our work to fight for those who have no voice, to stand up for the widow, and the orphan, and the oppressed, the slave, the impoverished, the illiterate that that is part of our life's work. But as I say that to you, and even as I say that to myself, all of the reasons why I can't help come to mind. Many of you might say, look, I don't have any time. My life is so full of the work that I have to do. I have no time to dedicate to fighting injustice. Others of you might say, well, I have time, but I don't even know where to begin. This stuff just kind of overwhelms me. I feel paralyzed. Some of you might say, well, I have no opportunity, I have no resources, I'm barely getting by, I can't give anything. Maybe even in a week like this or in a morning like this at the market, you think, I can't spend any money, I don't have any money to give. Honestly, I can't. And all of these things may be legitimate, our lack of time, our lack of money, our lack of resources, our lack of opportunity or um, creativity. But throughout scripture, throughout history, whenever God has called people in to do something that was way over their heads, he always asked them, well, what's in your hand? When God called Moses to go and lead his people out of slavery, and they were in Egypt, Moses had all of the reasons why. It's kind of a comical interchange between Moses and God, if you want to read it. All the reasons why he couldn't do this. And God says to him, well, what do you have in your hand? Now, he was a shepherd, so he had a staff. It was a piece of wood used it to kind of make sure the sheep didn't run too many places and used it as a walking stick. That was his craft. It was, what he, what he, it was all he had. And God says, throw it down. And he throws it down. If you know the story, it becomes a snake and he picks it up again and he was basically helping him be prepared to do all these miraculous signs and wonders in front of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. But after he picks it up, for the rest of that narrative, it's called the rod of God. 
It was a staff in his hand, it was a piece of wood, it was nothing, but he threw it down and when he picked it up again, it was filled with the power of God. And I believe this is symbolic in a sense in our lives is that whenever God comes to us and says, here, I want you to deal with this, this overwhelming thing and we have all of the reasons why we can't do it. He says, what's in your hand? What do you have? Who are you? What's in your hands? It's different for every one of us. I remember in 2008, when I was sitting at the leadership summit, some of you know this story, as a, as a kind of a leadership conference I go to every year and I was working uh, in business and one of the guys speaking was talking about the amount of injustice in the world and I was just starting to feel completely overwhelmed. And he said this at the end, he said, what's in your hand to give? And I kind of looked in my hands and I prayed that morning, I felt really inadequate and I said, God, I, I, the only thing I think I have in my hands right now is I kind of have the ear of the CEO of our company. He seems to like me for whatever reason. He hasn't quite figured out that I don't know what I'm doing. So he kind of likes me. That's all I could think of, it's all I could think of. And as I prayed, I felt like God saying, go talk to him and tell him that we need to stop just only trying to put money in our own pockets and maybe we should start to find a project to fund overseas. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll do that. That's all I have. So I went and talked to them, set up a meeting for two weeks, uh, th for a month out. Then I met with World Vision and said, hey, if I have a company that's willing to partner with you, what could we do? So we're all prepared. A week later, I decided to leave my job and become a minister. So I hadn't told them yet, but I just canceled the meeting. Because I thought, I, I can't tell him we should do this and then say, see you later. But a year later, as at a leadership summit again, this time in Chicago, this time with a board of elders, and now finding myself as a minister of a church. And I looked down this time and God said, what's in your hands now? Something else. So I said, okay, God. And, and these guys, we were all listening to somebody talk about injustice and we all looked at each other and we said, we don't know what to do, but we gotta do something. Doing nothing is not an option. And I wanna tell you what has happened in our church by all of us looking down at our hands and saying, what do we have in our hands to give? At that point, God had entrusted me with, in a sense, a direction of a church and with the rest of these elders board saying, yes, we gotta do something. And so we began in 2009, we dug a couple of wells in Senegal. Shortly after that, we got connected with this mission and ministry in Guinea. And one thing led to another. So what has been in your hands, Upper Room, these last six years? We have prayed. We've prayed monthly. Some of you have prayed weekly, daily. We've prayed every year at our week of prayer. Do you know the things that have happened when we first sent that team to Guinea and they came back and they said, oh my gosh, Lizette and Lazar are so overwhelmed and their security guards are stealing from them and letting human traffickers maybe into this um, orphanage, putting these kids at risk. And we were like, what, this is the security guards? And we felt like Lazar was totally alone, he had no help, so we started praying. And a little while later, actually by the time the next team had come, more kids, much more trustworthy security, and other partners that had truly come alongside them to help. Then we were praying, God, Lizette, like she's been there for 22 years, but she's um, over 60 and she's gonna have to retire when she's 70. So who else is gonna help? She can't do this alone. So we pray. Now her sister is out there every six months. Her sister quit her job. She's a primary school teacher. So now she's out there six months of the year, every year for the next how long to teach the kids? Because some of the HIV kids struggle in school. They're not keeping up. And so God answered that prayer. You have prayed for Wayne and Catherine for many years. And after eight, nine years of being there now, Wayne's business is growing and they've seen several Muslims come to Christ. Many Muslims that are disillusioned with ISIS and the whole direction of that faith right now. After eight years, nine years of praying, 
God is rescuing, and, and God is creating a, a business for Wayne so that the men who normally have to leave where they live to go to Russia to find work and end up being apart from their families for months and months and months at a time now have employment in that country so they stay at home so the children are being raised by both mom and dad in the home. You've looked down at your hands and seen money. I looked at the, at the money that this church has given over the last seven years. Do you know in the last seven years, we've given over $500,000 a little over half of that to Guinea, and a, little, and a little less than that goes to our Global Advance Fund, which funds the salaries for all of our international workers. So you may say, well, I, don't, I can't go overseas, but the, don't worry, there's tons of people over there and you're paying their salary. So they don't have to spend time doing all this other kind of stuff so they can run businesses, they don't have to take a profit from it. So that Lizette can be there, you say, think, I can never do what Lizette's doing. That's okay, you're giving money that's funding her so she can do it. Over $500,000 in that period of time. That's 25% of our total budget over that period of time. 25% goes out to all over the place for good news and good works. You've looked down in your hands and you've seen creativity. In a few moments, we're gonna go up to that market and we're gonna see 28 kids who over the last few years have created things in their own mind and their own hands are gonna sell them and you are gonna overpay for them. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true, actually, it's so good, you don't even have to overpay, you're gonna get a deal. <laughs> there is creativity that is in our hands to give, to find new ways, and many of you have participated in these works and come up with new stuff. Many of you have time, and you have used that time to pound the pavement on dentist's office, doctor's office, schools, and you have filled our office with stuff that is now going into a container that we're gonna ship overseas. You have volunteered your time. Some of you have given time and money to go over there. We've sent, I think, around 17 people. Uh, well, the, last seven, the last six we're gonna send, by God's grace. We're gonna get them on a plane. You have given time. Whatever is in your hands, it by itself is so small, but every one of us, we've been throwing down, year after year, throwing down, throwing down, saying, God, you gotta do something with this. When God presents us with a need that's bigger in our hands, says, what's in your hand? Will you throw it down, pick it up again? It's got my power in it. And what I can do with what's in your hands is way more than you could ever ask or imagine. That's how we respond to a need that's so much bigger than what we have. Together, we throw down year after year after year. And so we're never gonna stop. And my great, one of my greatest joys is knowing that the kids of our church are gonna grow up with a faith where they know that good news and good works go hand in hand. Where they understand if you really love Jesus, you're gonna love like Jesus. And if you wanna love like Jesus, you gotta love Jesus. Our kids are gonna know that, amen? Because year after year, we're gonna keep throwing down. And so I ask you today, what is in your hands? If this is the work that you have to do, that God has called you to do, what do you have? Some of you have influence. Some of you look in your hands and you know you have the ear of some of the people you work with. Maybe you're the boss in your workplace, so you definitely have the ear of everyone in your work. Maybe you have peers and colleagues and friends who are starting to wrestle with this good news and good works. Maybe they, they wanna do good, but they don't know how or they don't have an opportunity and you can connect them to that. Or maybe they have a passion to do good works, but they don't understand how Jesus is the center of all work of justice. And how we don't just need food and clothing and shelter, we need healing in our hearts from shame and from even the perpetrators of injustice. We cannot just rescue the victims, we have to pray for the perpetrators. 
We have to pray for those who are perpetrating injustice now to be changed. So maybe you have influence with people that way. Maybe you have creativity. You have a new business or a new service. You want to start new habits in your life or with the people you work with. Maybe you have money. And if you have money, here's what I'd say. Give and ask God for more. That's how it works. Biblical principle. If you give generously, God looks at the person and says, that person knows what to do with a lot of money. I'm going to give them more. Because I know if they give them that, they're not just going to hoard it. They're not just going to think it's for themselves. If I give them more money, they're going to go, wait a second. Why has God given me so much? And some of us need to ask that. Why do I have so much? You give and ask God for more. Say, God, use my hands. Flow your money through my hands. I'm going to do good with it. Some of you have time. If you have time, either because you're out of work or you work part-time or you're retired, or you just find yourself in a season where maybe work isn't as busy as it used to be. You don't have to burn the midnight oil. Pray. Read up. You want book recommendation of this stuff? I'll give it to you. And maybe you want to go on the next team. We're going to open up the doors for, because uh, there's six of them. We could probably handle nine on that team. So maybe there's three more of you that say, hey, the next time that's going, I want to go. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Whatever it is, I don't know. You know, look down in your hands and say, God, <clears throat> what have you put there? I'm going to throw it down. And ask the worship team to come and lead us in response. <clears throat> Why should we do this? Why should you throw down? Those of you that have given money over the last little while, maybe you've given a little bit, maybe you've given a lot. You know what you could have done with that money instead? You could have gone on a vacation and it would have been over a long time ago. You could have had a nicer sweater to wear today. You could have had a few more coffees. Was it worth it to give a hundred times over? What would you have been able to do if you hadn't have prayed? You could have watched another episode of Downton Abbey. Or Downtown, right? Right, Greg? Downton Abbey. Think about what you could have done with that time if you hadn't have prayed. What does it seem like now? Nothing, right? We throw down because we get the joy of participating with God in doing things that we could never do by ourselves. We always get less the more we hang on to what God has given us. The more we let it go, the more we truly get joy in our work. And for some of us, the pathway to finding joy in our life's work is to be able to say, what's in my hands? What can I throw down? I just pray that this morning and this whole week will be a blessing for you, that you will hear God calling you in to do something. Whatever is in your hands, you don't need to do more than what's in your hands. But what he's given you, I pray this morning you'll find joy in kind of throwing that down uh, together. So thanks so much for coming and uh, get your kids if you have them. If you don't have any, don't get them. And then head upstairs. (laughs) 